It's my great pleasure to introduce our keynote speaker this evening at the end of a long and I think interesting day. Um, we're very lucky to have Ivan Krastyev with us this evening as our keynote speaker. Um, the topic of his talk is Imitation and its Discontents, Reflections on the Politics of Resentment in Eastern Europe. Um, this, or more or less this, will also be the title of a book that he has um, co-authored, uh, if I'm right, with Stephen Holmes. It will come out in the autumn with Penguin and shortly after that in a German translation um, as well. Thank you very much for the introduction. The problem is that you should listen not only to the title, but for 45 <laughs> minutes more. So be prepared. Uh, and also what I'll do it... Uh, uh, we have this book which we have been working with Stephen Holmes uh, for the last 10 years and it started as one book and ended up as another. Uh, and what I'll try to do is basically to try to summarize the argument. Uh, there is a huge problem with the lectures that try to do it. First, if I'm very good to summarize, you're never going to read the book. So I decided from this point of view much more to structure as a trailer than a summary. Uh, in order basically much more to create an interest. Uh, secondly, because in this type of a summary, of course, you go with, you're losing a lot of uh, nuances, you're losing uh, a lot of details. But for me, this was important because uh, I do believe this book was also meant uh, uh, very much uh, to provoke certain uh, debate. And this is a book argument, and I'm going to give you the argument, basically. Uh, uh, as I told you, oh, uh, Stephen Holmes is a very wise man. So from this point of view, if you like something, there is a 90% chance that it was him than me uh, in the book. But it is very much the way, uh, the title of the book is uh, The Light That Failed, Reckoning. And it's very much going to the topic that you have today. And this is the story of the long 1989, which probably started, according to Samuel Solidarity in 1980. Others basically with Gorbachev in 1985, and in my view, ended somewhere with the Arab Spring, not simply because you have a failure of the democratic revolution, but because in, with the Arab Spring in the West, you have to have the fear of a democratic revolution that comes. So it's not simply that it didn't work, but the fact that it can work, but produce migration and so on and so on, was perceived as a threat and not as an opportunity. Uh, I'm saying this because the questions that we have been trying to answer was how liberalism ended up the victim of its heralded success in 1989. Uh, and uh, the good story about the title, The Light That Failed, this is also the title of the first novel of Kipling. And this is a novel about a guy who is losing his sight. So we have been very much interesting also in the intellectual debate. First, why we were so sure that we know certain things in the early 1990s, why we became very much disturbed with them today, and there was a lot of presentation in the beginning saying that we're in a much kind of a major rethinking. But the other charm of the title was that basically Kipling has the book with two different endings. He had a shorter version with a happy ending because his mother insisted on this. Uh, and basically, he had also a longer version with a much more pessimistic ending, which he did for himself. So we also basically didn't know how to end the book, how pessimistic or optimistic, so we decided that the very fact that Kipling had two endings probably is going to make our, march, uh, our work easier. 
So when the day when uh, uh, President Obama was leaving the White House, according to his uh, advisor Ben wrote, he asked the following question. He said, "What if we did? If we get things wrong? So not who did wrong, not what went wrong. It's not Hillary Clinton's what happened, but what if we get?" Things wrong, and for me the most interesting story is what if we got wrong the nature of the post-communist period. And when I talk about post-communist period, and you're going to see this in the book, the post-communist period is not only about the post-communist countries, uh, because one of the major kind of, uh, in my view, uh, failures in many of our analyses is to trying to explain what is happening in Central and Eastern Europe very much disconnected to the bigger type of a crisis of liberalism that we see outside of the region. What we see is not the crisis of democratization. We see a crisis of liberal democracy. And this crisis of liberal democracy, both in the East and the West, was very much the result of 1989. So from this point of view, in order to understand what basically we're talking about, we should try to look at this, to try to see what are the major kind of characteristics of this period. Uh, that have been defining it and what was the result that we see connected to this. Uh, so basically, uh, if you go back to 1989, uh, people talk about triumphalism. Uh, this is not exactly historically correct. Triumphalism came slightly later, particularly in the late 1990s and particularly after Kosovo. If you're going to read also the titles of the most the books that have been published immediately after 1989, it was uncertainty. So you have Brzezinski's Out of Control, you have the New World Disorder of Ken Jowett and others. So this is not that people were so triumphalist in the beginning, but there was a major shared conviction that we are seeing a dramatic historical change. Or as uh, uh, one of uh, analysts has written, there was an understanding that 1989 divides past from the future in the way the Berlin Wall was dividing is from the West. And this kind of a change was, of course, very much related to the end of communism, but it was also related to the fact that exactly in this early 1990s, you have the internet, you have a major technological revolution. The speed of change was also in our everyday lives. It was not simply political ideas, but we physically had the feeling that, uh, uh, that the world is uh, changing. So now when we try to explain what went wrong, we basically go with concrete stories. It was 9-11, it is America's war in Iraq, it is the financial crisis, it is the right of China. But I do believe our ambition in the book was to try not to give the general common explanation for certainly liberal turn in the world, but to come with a general story that is going to interact three different type of uh, uh, developments that I, do, I want to, uh, to talk about. So basically, we start with a very simple kind of interpretation. And this is, we go back to Fukuyama, and of course people try to take Fukuyama very much. Ironically, disagreeing with Fukuyama has become professional, but the story was that he captured the spirit of the time better than many others. And to be honest, for him, his argument was slightly more sophisticated than people believed. First, his uh, major article, which was published in the summer of 1989, the end of history was with the question mark, and it was not a triumphalist article. 
His basic argument was not that the world is going to become liberal democracies everywhere. His major argument, of course, very Hegelian in its making, and he made it very clear, was that at the end of the day, we reach the moment in which no other universalist ideology is going to contest liberal democracy. So he believes that they're going to be probably not democratic regimes, that they're going to be failures. Uh, he was not highly excited about the nature of this period. He believed it's going to be boring. But his major argument was, with the end of the Cold War, no any Of course, worked very well for the Americans who won the Cold War, but it also worked very well in the post-communist societies because we have been told in the Marxist history has an end destination. So for us, it was much easier to agree that the end destination was a liberal capitalism than to believe that there was not an end destination. Uh, so from this point of view, even for the old communist elites, this type of a historical determinism fitted is their framework, and they said, okay, we have been on the train. It appeared basically that uh, the final station was a different one than we believed, but at least there is a final station. History goes in a certain direction. What we are arguing is that this period of the end of history, in the way it was defined by Fukuyama, in major uh, aspect can be defined as the age of imitation. So from this point of view, when we talk about imitation, we're not simply talking uh, about the fact that uh, uh, communism was over, but and, uh, uh, we're basically saying that in 1990, nevertheless, where you're looking in the world, there was only one model of society and political regime that was worth imitating. You can decide how to do it. Some are going to do better than others. Some are going to fail. Some are probably going to cheat. But the story was that there was a model, and there was one model. And this was the model of liberal democracy. And this is why even uh, societies and governments and regimes that were not democratic would try to pretend to be democratic because the liberal democracy became the synonymous with the modern society in general. Uh, and this creates a very particular situation. When I say imitation, for us, is very important because this imitation does not come from the point of view of somebody imposing on this society. This imitation is a voluntary decision. It is not that basically the Germans or Americans came to the Central and East Europeans and said, "Do it." This was our decision, but this was a decision taken in a situation in which no major alternative was there, and even the Chinese, and I'm going to uh, uh, basically say something about this, at this moment uh, was not very much contesting uh, uh, the non-alternative nature of this uh, 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 story. So our major idea is that this kind of a imitation imperative, which was the logical result of our understanding of the end of the Cold War, is the thing that explains the different type of resentment and reactions, which we're going to see in three different cases uh, that basically we're analyzing in the book. And basically we're telling these three different stories of resentment to the imitation imperative. We're talking about Central and Eastern Europe, we're talking about Russia, but also we're talking about the United States. Why the imitated decided that the world that imitates them is not in their interest. Uh, and uh, we're doing basically this starting and uh, first defining why for us imitation is important and what it means. Uh, 
listen, you, most of you are coming from the social sciences and you know that there is a big literature on this. Already in the 19th century, Tardet was claiming that society is imitation. We are all the time imitating others without persons, without strategy. This is basically how it developed. This is how the child is learning to speak. So from this point of view, we're not talking about this type of an imitation that is very much uh, well uh, known. What we're claiming is that this time you have an imitation that has four very particular characteristics. You are not imitating certain models, I mean certain elements of a system. You're imitating comprehensive system, which basically insists that if you want to succeed, you should imitate everything, the economic system, the political system. Secondly, you're not simply imitating a model that is different, but the model that perceives itself as morally superior. Thirdly, you imitate a model in which basically those who are the model, the West, keeps very much for themselves the privilege to sanction and to tell how well they imitate it. And this is, of course, very clear for uh, in the process of European integration and others, but in general, it's not by accident that you have all this kind of uh, strategy of uh, democracy promotion, democracy judging, and basically, it's never going to believe anybody that Zimbabwe can come with the Freedom House Index. Nevertheless, it is technically possible because the very fact that you are the model that others want to uh, uh, basically to imitate. Uh, and also, the, far, the fourth point of the situation of the imitation that we find particularly interesting is that, uh, nevertheless, the imitation imperative was very important when it comes to institutional and political developments. Culturally, we are living in an age where being the original is what matters, and being a copy is a problem. Uh, so in a certain way, you should imitate in a moment in which basically being a copy is perceived as culturally inferior. Uh, uh, it is interesting because when we go uh, to the age of imitation, uh, we very much try to clash two different uh, kind of uh, uh, vision of this period. One was, of course, Fukuyama who said, listen, it's going to be a period of imitation. It's not going to be interesting because you don't have an alternatives. They're going to be success, they're going to be failure, but it's a general trend. From this point of view, Fukuyama is coming from a very clear modernization theory tradition, but unlike people like Lipset and others, he was not interested in the preconditions anymore. He basically skipped this part. Uh, but there was another uh, person who was absolutely obsessed with the problem of uh, mimicking and imitation, and this is the French philosopher René Girard. Girard is coming from literary studies. I know that here there are people who are doing literature and they probably know him better than people who are doing political science. He was also quite popular. He, he made most of his career in the United States. Uh, he ended in the University of Stanford. There was a moment in which he was particularly popular with the nuclear strategies and people doing basically uh, uh, international relations and nuclear studies. But his major argument, and he was obsessive about this argument, he wrote more than 20 books uh, trying to believe that basically his uh, 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 theory of mimesis explains everything. Uh, but his major argument is that first, Imitation, in its nature, we are not imitating things, we are imitating the desires of others. It's major difference between basically trying to imitate how I'm doing a cocktail and basically trying to imitate having a cocktail. And one of his classical arguments is if you are in a room with children, the best toy, and there are a lot of toys in the room, is the toy in the heads of the other kid. 
you basically want something that others have. Secondly, uh, what was important for him is that there is a major difference between imitating Christ, basically something which is transcendental, and imitating your peers, somebody like you. Imitating your peers is a very rivalry relations. Because on one level, you want to be like him. But the moment you want to be like him, you also have the feeling that you yourself are kind of inferior. You're losing part of your identity. But also trying to be like him, you're becoming a threat to him. You try to replace him. So the major difference between Fukuyama and Girard was that for Girard, the relations between the model and the replica, between the model and the copy, is a very contested and kind of rivalry relations. Uh, this is, by the way, and he's, I'm using uh, Girard himself, he's beautifully illustrating this on the base of a story that I can imagine that you know very well. And this is the Dostoevsky's eternal husband. Uh, if you remember the story, this is the story of a husband who lost his wife. And the wife used to have a kind of a uh, playful uh, sexual life. She has a lot of lovers. He was extremely kind of depressed by this. So after his wife died, he started to visit all these former lovers and basically trying to to understand her and what is happening, but uh, he was particularly uh, fascinated and obsessed by one of these uh, ex-lovers uh, to the extent that uh, he see him as a model, he starts to copy him, he basically tries to become like him. Uh, the story of uh, Dostoevsky is told from the perspective of these ex-lovers. So at some point he starts dating another woman, young woman, and he invited uh, this same ex-lover for a dinner. And this is the story. On one level, he tries to show this ex-lover that he has learned his art. He has become a seducer. But secondly, try to test it. Can you get this one? Now I can defend myself. Now it's a different situation. So in a certain way, uh, I'm saying because this type of a relationship of I want to be like you, but because I want to be like you, in a certain way, I also want to beat you. Uh, is something that, in my view, uh, was very much missed by people who believe that the period in which the world is going to imitate Western models is going to be the model of kind of a non-problematic Westernization of, uh, of these societies. Uh, so, so here is the three resentments, and we make a very different type of, we're talking about a very different type of imitation. In Central and Eastern Europe, you have a general idea to imitate the West in order to become like West as a society. It was about conversion, and this was basically based also on the narrative that we were the West. And because of the uh, communist period, because of the Soviet occupation, particularly strong in Central and East European countries, we lost our true identity. And if you're going basically to follow the dissident discourse from the 70s and 80s, uh, Central and Eastern Europe as a true Europe, kind of the true West, was very much strong there. Uh, so for Central and East Europeans, uh, from this point of view, we're not talking about an imposition, uh, but at the same time, of course, the problem of being like the West means that we are going to try to change ourselves. As you can imagine, you cannot go too much into the details of the book. I'm just going to give you two points, one of them have been discussed also in the morning, that were very important for our Central and East European chapter. One is the idea of normality. If you're going to see what is the key word for the revolution of 1989, this is the utopia of normality. We want to be a normal country. 
And you're going to hear it very well everywhere uh, to the extent that basically Adam Michnik has, has formula that it is freedom, equality, and normality, which was the lozunk of, uh, uh, this was the slogan of the, uh, uh, of the 1989 revolution. There are three interesting things about normality. First, normality means normal like the West. If the future was before very much ahead in time, now future was next to you in space. The future of Poland was Germany. So in a certain way, it's not your children that are going to see the future. Basically, you can see the future. But secondly, this idea of normality was also become highly problematic because, uh, as you know, in our everyday language, to be normal, something to be normal has two different meanings. One is to be like a norm. But secondly, it is widespread. If everybody is doing this, this is also normal. From this point of view, in many of our countries, to be not corrupt is normal because this is the norms. But to be corrupt is also normal because many people are doing this. So you have a very kind of a schizophrenic idea of normality with which basically you should try all the time decide in what sense you are normal. And it's very difficult to synchronize, particularly if you're in a business. Uh, you should basically decide to what extent one or the other idea of normality is going to help you uh, to survive. So this idea of normality was critically important because it ended up very strongly with one people basically seeing their own reality as abnormal and trying to change it, but the other trying very much to make and to normalize the West. They are corrupt as us, but they are simply not ready to recognize it. Uh, they're basically pretending that they're different, but they're very much like us. I'm saying this because the anti-imitation uh, discourse is very strong among some of the new populist sectors in Central and Eastern Europe. In the book, we basically, because uh, we are doing quite a lot of work on uh, uh, Mr. Orban, uh, Mr. Kaczynski, but some of the intellectual figures around them, and one of the stories, we do not want to be imitators anymore. The very fact of being imitators means we don't recognize that we are morally inferior and also this is a power asymmetry that we are not going to tolerate. How are you changing this? The only way for the imitator to change his relationship to the model is to claim, I'm the model now. And this is basically what Orban did after the refugee crisis. He said, and I'm almost quoting him, he said, for 30 years we believed that the West is the model. Now we are the model, they're going to imitate us. Uh, uh, and I'm saying this because this world divided between the imitated and imitators was critically important in order to understand the psychological preconditions because from time to time people try to put much more cultural content populist discourse, trying to explain everything coming from the 1930s and others. Uh, I do believe that in many of these cases we're talking much more about psychological reaction to this situation of being imitator than a classical type of ideologies. Uh, and uh, this is why, for example, I never bought the idea of the backsliding. By the way, the term backsliding comes from religion, and it means somebody who was baptized and went to back to its pagan habits. It's a very strong cultural story that everything that is coming 
uh, as a kind of a crisis of liberal democracy and liberalism should be explained by the legacies uh, of pre-communist or communist legacies of these countries. In a certain way, what we're trying to do with this book is to try to see much more what we are seeing in all these three cases that I'm going to describe now, talking about Central and Eastern Europe, is very much about reaction to this nature of the post-communist period as relations divide, the major division being between the imitated and the imitators. The second interesting story about the fact that normality was the utopia and that basically future is next to you is the out-migration that we are talking about. Listen, after every revolution, there was a major movement of people. But normally this is the defeated party that is leaving. It was the white Russians that left after the Russian revolutions. It was the white French that basically left uh, after the French Revolution. The paradox of the liberal revolution of 1989 was that the liberals were the first to leave. And this has the explanation of the fact that every revolutionary wants to live in the future. So if the future is uh, the Western society next to you, you want to test it, you want to study there, you and to work. Uh, but this type of a major movement of people uh, is one of the most important paradoxes, and I am very happy that this demographic uh, uh, question came uh, early in the day, uh, because people are not understanding the scale that we're talking about. I'm not, not going to give uh, the Bulgarian data. I'm going to give the Romanian data and also the meaning of this data. Just for the last, first of all, when you ask in the all public opinion polls that I have been seeing, Central and East Europeans, what is the best thing that happened to you as a result of the change in European integration, they're going to see the freedom of movement. The fact that we can travel freely and that we can work abroad. At the same time, now in the last survey, uh, which uh, European Council of Foreign Relations did, it appeared that in all Central and East European countries, with the exception of the Czech Republic, emigration, the fear that our own people are living, comes as a major concern, much bigger than the fear of the foreigners coming. Even more, in Poland, Hungary, and Romania, the majority of the people said that they are ready to tolerate if the government decided to make it difficult for their own people to work abroad for a longer period of time. Uh, the explanation for this, and we have been discussing very much the difference between the idea of the individual success and collective success. Communist societies were based on the idea of the collective success. Russians are doing shitty, but Soviet Union was a great country. Uh, now, paradoxically, after in the post-communist period, it's my individual success. I have a much more opportunity, I'm living better, but the collective success, Bulgaria is not overperforming, even basically in the Olympics. Uh, so from this point of view, this is quite important change because if you see what happened with the out-migration is in Romania, for the last 10 years, 3.4 million people has left the country. 70% of them are younger than 40. Uh, as a result of it, three important changes are taking place. One, of course, is that the labor market in most of the Central and East European countries is becoming highly problematic, and you are never going to understand so-called the slavery law in Hungary if you don't understand, basically, that this is a result of this demographic crisis. But secondly, it's not simply people living. All the money invested in their education are living, too. Uh, according to the calculations that the Italian colleague did, around 200 billion euro moved from the East to the West. Uh, for the last 10 years based on the money being invested in the education of the people who left the countries. But it's not only people and money living, voters are living. Uh, when people are saying what happened to the liberal voters in many of the Central and East European countries, they're very much in the West. 
and this explains part of kind of a decline of uh, 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 it's very different from country to country by the way it's also very different how these people vote or not vote Romania from this point of view is extremely interesting because the Romanian diaspora basically decided two elections the last presidential elections and on the current European elections but it's very important because also because of the uh, freedom of movement if you're a young person in some of these countries you have a classical uh, Hirschman dilemma of exit and voice and to be honest and Hirschman is very clear on this exit is much easier than voice particularly if the question of loyalty and the meaning of loyalty has changed in 1981 being in prison Mechnik wrote a very important open letter to the opposition said why we should not emigrate and it was very important. Of course, this was also a response to certain debates about 1968. Uh, but he basically said the moment when we're going to immigrate Poland, because at this moment, Jaruzelski was saying that if the leaders of the opposition agree to emigrate, uh, they're going to uh, free around 6,000 people that have been uh, kept in the, uh, in, uh, in the camps. Uh, and they said we should not emigrate, because our legitimacy is based on the fact of staying in the country. After 1989, this type of a message, we should not emigrate, do not have any political power. Why not? We are not emigrating to a foreign country. We're emigrating to Europe and to a part of Europe, but also we're going to the future. We simply want basically to jump to the future uh, uh, immediately. So the third part of this demographic uh, decline argument is that even when you're succeeding, personally, and if you're doing well, if you're succeeding in a country in which most of your friends uh, and peers are discussing leaving the country, your success is losing part of its meaning. By the very fact of staying there, and listen, being a Bulgarian, who have been living in Bulgaria a long time, now being part of Vienna, I know what it means. Basically, every person living, you are making a problem for the success of people staying. So, as a result of it, this type of a demographic part of the story, depopulation as an effect to try to understand the reaction of the society and support for populist parties, for us was a very important story. Uh, as you can imagine, there's much more that, that we have in the book. But then I'll go to Russia, because Russian case is also very interesting for us. Russia was not, and when I talk Russia now, you're talking much more political elites that were taking the decisions. Uh, one of the interesting questions is why Russian elites were not particularly, Soviet elites were not particularly fearful about uh, democracy in the early 1990s. And I do believe part of uh, the key to this mystery is very much in Marxism. Because what they knew about democracy was very much uh, the uh, Marxist interpretation of the democracy as a form of class power. This is basically the way for the ruling class to keep people down without the need to kill them. And because these people feel as a ruling class, uh, they didn't have any reason, basically, uh, to feel very much uh, uh, disturbed by this. Uh, but in the early period, uh, basically uh, imitating and simulating Western uh, democratic institutions was the very way uh, for the Russian states to survive. Because at this moment, basically, the very survival of the institutions of the social life were put very much uh, uh, under question. And, uh, of course, the legitimacy of the Russian government, the financial resources were very much related. The money of the IMF are coming because, basically, you should show uh, certain signs of democratization. Uh, we have a special section of the book about the nature of the managed democracy uh, uh, in 2000s, before, uh, before 2011-12. And the major question that we're asking there is the following. Everybody is saying why they're 
faking democracy and so on. For us, the interesting question is why Putin was rigging elections, which he was going to win in 2004, if the elections were free and fair. Secondly, why he's rigging them in the way that everybody knew that they rigged. And our major argument is that managed democracy is much more about faking management than about faking democracy. Uh, in a certain way, by showing that you can control the situation totally, and showing that there is no alternative to the president, uh, the elections played a very important function in the way uh, the non-democratic system performs. This uh, type of elections is not about changing power. This type of elections is about consolidating power. First, you're using the elections to show that there is no alternative to the president. So all the time he's competing with people who by the very fact that being in the stage are convincing the Russian voters that they are not an alternative. Neither Zyuganov nor Zhirinovsky basically are somebody that you really want to elect. Secondly, Russian elite was using basically uh, the elections in the way the military use exercises. Uh, for example, people uh, always say how much during the Russia rigged elections people are stuffing the ballots. This is not exactly the case. In a certain way, Kremlin is doing everything possible uh, not to stuff the ballots because they want to see who of the governors can perform, who of the governors can basically get people to vote. And as a result of the presidential elections, you're not changing president, but some of the governors are going to be changed. This is basically the way to have certain level of control of a system that is not allowing control from, uh, from below. An accountable system also needs. And thirdly, what is very important, this type of rigged elections are very important because uh, on the night of the elections, Russia was totally traumatized by the disintegration of the Soviet Union. And this is a very important story. Uh, we're making uh, uh, on several pages this uh, story. For us, the end of Soviet Union and the end of communism are something that are very easily coming together. For many Russians who are not very particularly nostalgic for communism, for them, the end of Soviet Union was the end of their country. And this is totally different. For them, communism and Soviet Union does not go together. Uh, so it was much more uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union than the collapse of communism that was the trauma about. Uh, but what was important is that on the night of elections, you have all these people that fear, and particularly in the late 1990s, there was a very strong fears that country is going to disintegrate. In 2003, 43% of the people on the opinion polls did not believe that the current borders of Russia uh, are going to be permanent. Some believe that Russia is going to become bigger, but even bigger part believes that Russia is going to become smaller. And then you have the night of the elections. And then you see the most problematic parts, Chechnya and others, voting 96% for the president, 90. So this is a kind of a parade of unity. You have the feeling that the process of disintegration is under control. Uh, and also the elections are critically important to make a distinctions between the loyal opposition and disloyal opposition. Uh, what is important on the Russian elections is who is going to be allowed to compete. If you're allowed to compete, basically, you're sanctioned of being loyal opposition. If you're not, and this can change. For example, Navalny was allowed to compete in Moscow. He overperformed, so in a certain way, it didn't work well. Uh, but we are doing, working also quite a lot with uh, uh, the idea of the imitation democracy, which uh, one of the Russian political scientists uh, have been very much developing in the 1990s. Uh, all this system of imitation basically makes Russian regimes the source of legitimacy was rigged elections, which everybody knows that it's rigged, but nobody's protesting. And this is why 2011, 2012 protests were in a way a regime change. 
because this source of legitimacy cannot stay because people have been protesting. Uh, and then I do believe we see a second type of imitation, which we're calling very much mirroring, in which basically the decision of the Russian government was we were imitating the wrong things. It's not the institutions that the Westerners are giving us that is worth imitating. This is America's foreign policy. So we're going to imitate and mirror you, not because we have an alternative, but to show you that you are not very much different than us. Uh, and I'm just going to give uh, two important kind of uh, uh, illustrations of this idea of mirroring. One is many people are asking absolutely right question, why President Putin basically declared that there was no Russian special forces in Crimea. Uh, lying in foreign policy is not something that is so unusual, but normally you lie when there is a certain possibility of deniability. That is something that cannot be proved. The moment when he was saying that there were no Russian special forces in Crimea, uh, basically most of the Western leaders knew the names of the people. So why are you lying something that cannot survive six hours? But this is because we believe that he's lying because he wants to hide the truth. But he's not lying. This is a form of provocation. And there is uh, basically, in the intelligence literature, there is a lot about the nature of deception being much more provocation than lying. He's saying that there is no Russian troops because he wants to be called a liar. And then he can say, liar like you. What about uh, the weapons of mass destruction in Iraq? Secondly, if I'm lying, what you can do to me? And then basically you're showing the limits of the Western power. I'm saying this because this type of a mirroring produces a lot of asymmetrical effect. Uh, and the most story of it is that the message is, I'm doing to you what I know that you're doing to me. Uh, from this point of view, uh, I do believe many of you have been uh, read uh, a lot of articles about famous Gerasimov doctrine, about the hybrid, uh, hybrid war. Uh, if you have read the document, basically, the major argument of Gerasimov is the following. The Western is fighting a hybrid war against us, and we should try to do the same. So the idea of a reverse social engineering, we are doing to you what you are doing to us, and this is the only way to claim our power status. Is critical. If you go to the FBI and the Mueller report, you're going to see that meddling through social media in the American politics started already in 2014 when Donald Trump was not a candidate for president yet. It was very much about status. Being a great power means that I have a capacity and I dare to you what you're doing to me. In the book, we show that in a certain way, this is also extremely dangerous type of a strategy if you keep in mind uh, the, the global interest. Because as a result of it, uh, you're never trying to understand. For example, this is very strong in the, American, uh, in the Russian discourse. Uh, they always believe that Americans achieved what they want. If you're going to talk uh, to a senior Russian official about the Iraqi war, and you're going to say, Americans screwed up, and they're going to say, no, they did not screw up. This is what they wanted to destabilize this Middle East. So in a certain way, in this discourse, everything which the other side is doing is always intentional. It is always successful. Uh, so from this point of view, you end up a situation, and on this, uh, uh, I do believe, uh, uh, basically, it's quite important. You have an escalation, which is not based on conflicting interests. Escalation is very much determined by this politics of mirroring in which I even lost the idea why I'm doing this to you anymore. I'm doing it simply to keep my status. 
And this type of uh, basically trying to interpretation, these two different forms uh, of uh, the Russian behavior uh, uh, in the age of imitation, in my view, is also explaining one thing that we find critically important. And this is where this basic fear of Russia comes uh, in the Western world today. This is not the fear of the Soviet Union. Uh, and we, uh, it's not, I'm even not talking about potential. Uh, uh, Stephen Kotkin recently gave a talk in the K2 Institute. And he had, I didn't have these two beautiful uh, pictures. One was athletic Putin uh, riding the American Eagle, and the other is kind of dying Brezhnev. And you're going to see that one was kindly powerful and the other was basically uh, uh, totally dead. But the truth is that. Uh, Compared to the economic power, with respect to the United States, Soviet Union was several times stronger compared to the US than Russia was to the US today. And when it comes even to the military balance and others, the situation was the same. So these pictures are very misleading. But what struck with this mirroring policy is that it's not that we believe that Soviets uh, Russians, like the Soviets, are going to transform our societies. Uh, but this type of a politics of mirroring make the Western society start to fear that we are not so different from them. And I do believe this is the story that if before you look what's happening in Russia and said, this is something coming from the past. And now you ask yourself, is it not something coming from the future? Uh, and I do believe uh, this kind of a totally different, uh, 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 different uh, nature. And the third part of uh, imitation, which in my view is much more kind of uh, 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 going to come strange for many of you why it is in the book is, but for us is one of the most interesting, how it happened that by electing Donald Trump, Americans decided that the world that imitated them was the world very much against the American interest how it happened that America is the biggest loser of globalization, which is the basic story. Uh, how the, the imitated suddenly uh, started to, to believe that all the things that they believe that their advantages are their disadvantages. And one of the stories that we are giving is basically how the perception of the spread of the English language as the most popular language uh, started to be interpreted differently. Just 10 years ago, the fact that people were learning English, that everybody basically talks English and try to learn English was perceived as the best illustration of America's soft power and basically the global influence of the United States. And suddenly, and it started already after 9-11, uh, people started asking the questions. And the question is the following. Is there also a dark side of this? Okay, everybody speaks English. As a result of it, Americans started to totally underperform on learning foreign languages. Secondly, if an American goes to world, because in every country somebody speaks English, the Americans is going to tend to speak to the English speakers of these countries and believing that knows the country. But as we know from our countries, those who speak English are not the most representative sample uh, for the society as a whole. Thirdly, now when everybody speaks English, see uh, the, uh, the American popular culture, the world started to understand how America functions, while the America basically does not understand how others function. Uh, there was a famous uh, conversation uh, recorded between uh, President Putin and the Minister of Defense uh, Shoigu, in which Putin told him, uh, and now you're going to deal with the Americans being a Minister of Defense, but don't go too much studying them. It's enough to see the house of cards. Uh, I, I, I'm, saying, I'm saying all this because in a certain way, everything or takes basically the famous WikiLeaks uh, American cables. 
Imagine that WikiLeaks are going to have the same kind of a uh, leaking of the Chinese table, uh, Chinese cables. Do you believe it's going to have the same impact? Now everybody can go and to read the cables of the American diplomats and basically understand what is there. How many of us can go and to read the Chinese cables? Uh, uh, and I'm saying this because suddenly things that were perceived as very much as a demonstration of the American uh, 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 dominance in the world start to be perceived as American vulnerability. And of course, in the American case, it works very much based on the fact that economically, uh, part of the white working class uh, uh, lost positions, uh, major uh, Trump's argument that China is the biggest uh, uh, winner of uh, the globalization. I'm saying this because what is very common between Orban, Putin, and Trump is the major accusation to the liberal order is that liberals blurt the border between victory and defeat. All these people obsessed with victory, all three of them, the idea that in order for you to win, somebody should lose. It's a zero-sum game. For example, uh, people said that President Trump does not have a consistent ideas. Uh, uh, Bernard Sims, uh, the famous British historian, uh, had made a very kind of a, a interesting book which, which he took all the interviews that Trump has done, starting with 1980 till the first day when he declared his campaign, trying to see is there some views that never changed. And one of them was about this. He said, where is the fairness of the world in which Germany and Japan lost the World War II and they're living better than us? How we know that we are winners and they are losers if they're living better? Uh, the fact that basically because of this you get peace and so we know the argument, but this type of way of thinking that in order to be victorious they should be losers, is something that you can hear, for example, in Poland. Basically, Kaczynski is saying, how do we know that we won in 1989 when the ex-communists basically took all positions and so on, and our people are suffering, the people that have been uh, uh, striking and so on. So the idea that we need a world in which there is a very clear defining line between victors and losers, and the major attraction of liberal democracy, at least in my view, the idea that when you're losing, you're not losing everything, you're not losing your life, you're not losing your property, and you have a second chance. This major advantage of democracy was blamed being its uh, liberal democracy, basically blamed being its uh, major vulnerability. Uh, and it's also quite interesting that uh, it's not uh, so surprising that people from the business community come with this, because in business, the imitator is always the worst competitor. He takes your competitive advantage for free and basically goes on your market and trying to do this and that. So we're developing this uh, three stories uh, basically of, uh, of uh, imitation and how basically resentment to imitation in three different contexts with three different players uh, describes uh, some of the major changes that we see uh, in the, uh, the post-communist world. And we end with China where I'm going to end because we, our major claim is that China was never part of the age of imitation. Chinese were never imitated, they only borrowed. They borrowed more than anybody else. They borrowed institutions, they borrowed technologies, they steal technologies, but they're always insisting that they do not want to be like the West. And this was the major message of 1989 in China, not in Europe. Yes, we want to change, but we are not going to imitate the West. 
even more, it's not simply that they basically insisted that they don't want to imitate the West. Paradoxically, even today, when China is in a position of a rising power, there are two things that China wants to control the world, to control resources, to have a clear positions. But unlike the United States, China believes in its exceptionalism, not in its universalism. And they don't want others to imitate them, first, because they do not believe that anybody can imitate China. But secondly, because they fear the world that is going to imitate China. And this major kind of a view in which I fear the world of my replicas, while basically much more this combination between exceptionalism and universalism that was part of the message of the West in 1989. You're going to be like us because you're like us. We all are together. As a humanity, we're together. We see this as a kind of a closing of a certain political period. And from this point of view, of course, there are going to be a major confrontation between uh, China and the United States, but it's not going to be the new Cold War in the way the clash between the Soviet Union and the United States was clash between two different universalist projects for the world. Uh, and we basically end up there, and as I told you, uh, we said, okay, let's see if the, the light that failed uh, for Kipling has two endings, one positive and one uh, uh, not so positive. Why also keep our options uh, uh, open? Because we do believe that with all the crises that we see at the end of the day, uh, uh, liberalism has one advantage uh, to the, as a political philosophy and political regime, and this is much better equaling the system and the society which is changing all the time. And basically, people all the time should redefine their own identities and others. So we said uh, liberalism paid the price for trading, hegemony, for pluralism. We are back to the plural world. Liberalism is not going to have the position that it had after 1989. It can be basically its defeat. It could be also its blessing. And on this kind of a very open, uh, you know, I'm going to finish here. Thank you.